We're glad you've joined us on Songs of Praise, an hour of musical reflection to encourage your heart.
We hope you're enjoying Songs of Praise. Here's some more inspirational music. And all the windows fastened down I spent the night in sleeplessness Rose at every sound Half in hopeless sorrow Half in fear the day Would find the soldiers breaking through To drag us soul And just before the sunrise I heard something at the wall the gate began to rattle And a voice began to call I hurried to the window Looked down into the street Expecting swords and torches And the sound of soldiers' feet There was no one there but Mary So went down to let her in John stood there beside me as she told us where she'd been She said they've moved him In the night and none of us knows where The stone's been rolled away And now his body isn't there So both ran toward the garden Then John ran on ahead We found the stone and the empty tomb Just the way that Mary said But the winding sheet Strange it happened there, just what I didn't know. John believed a miracle. I just turned to go. Circumstance and speculation couldn't lift me very high. Cause I'd seen them crucify him. And then I saw him die. Back inside the house again. All the guilt and anguish came Everything I promised him Just added to my shame When at last it came to choices I denied I knew his name And even if he was alive It wouldn't be the same But suddenly the air was filled with a strange and sweet perfume Light that came from everywhere Drove shadows from the room Jesus stood before me With his arms held open wide I fell down on my knees Just clung to you and cried And you raised me to my feet And as I looked into his eyes Love was shining out from him Like sunlight from the sky Built in my confusion Disappeared in sweet release And every fear I'd ever had Just melted into peace
Songs of Praise continues with more inspirational music.
It's our desire to encourage and uplift your thoughts to our loving Creator God. I've got a heart that's full of faith filled helplessness. 
There are mountains ahead that I can't move by myself. But I know when I'm weak, He's strong. When I can barely breathe, there's still a song. Even though it's hard right now, I'm not here on my own. So when it seems it can't be done, I know God is big enough. I can run the race I'm called to run, cause I know God is big enough. He'll finish everything He starts and meet us right here. That I don't stand in my strength at all Cause I live a Oh, 
chosen seed of Israel's race, ye ransomed from the fall. Hail him who saves you by his grace, and crown him Lord of all. Hail him who saves you by his grace, and crown him Lord of all. Let every kindred, every tribe on this terrestrial ball to him all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. To him all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. Oh, that with yonder sacred throng we at his feet may fall. We'll join the everlasting song and praise him, Lord of all. We'll join the everlasting song and praise him, Lord of all. Gentle Jesus, me. Shut my 
Join us again next time on Songs of Praise, brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio, to enjoy more uplifting music. Welcome to 3ABN Australia Radio's book reading program. The book Christ's Object Lessons, written by Ellen White, presents the parables of Jesus in a fresh light, showing their application to Christian living today. In this devotional classic, Ellen White explores the depths of the best-loved teachings of Jesus, offering a deeply spiritual understanding of the parables of Christ as they apply to our lives today. You'll enjoy the practical applications in a way that touches your heart. Listen now as Clive Nash reads. Continuing the chapter... Friends by the mammon of unrighteousness. Make to yourselves friends by means of the mammon of unrighteousness, Christ says, that when it shall fail, they may receive you into the eternal tabernacles. God and Christ and angels are all ministering to the afflicted, the suffering and the sinful. Give yourself to God for this work. Use his gifts for this purpose, and you enter into partnership with heavenly beings. Your heart will throb in sympathy with theirs. You'll be assimilated to them in character. To you these dwellers in the eternal tabernacles will not be strangers. When earthly things shall have passed away, the watchers at heaven's gate will bid you welcome. And the means used to bless others will bring returns. Riches, rightly employed, will accomplish great good. Souls will be won to Christ. He who follows Christ's plan of life will see in the courts of God those for whom he has laboured and sacrificed on earth. Gratefully will the ransomed ones remember those who have been instrumental in their salvation. Precious will heaven be to those who have been faithful in the work of saving souls. The lesson of this parable is for all. Everyone will be held responsible for the grace given him through Christ. Life is too solemn to be absorbed in temporal or earthly matters. The Lord desires that we shall communicate to others that which the eternal and unseen communicates to us. Every year, millions upon millions of human souls are passing into eternity unwarned and unsaved. From hour to hour, in our varied life, opportunities to reach and save souls are open to us. These opportunities are continually coming and going. God desires us to make the most of them. Days, weeks, and months are passing. We have one day, one week, one month less in which to do our work. A few more years at the longest, and the voice which we cannot refuse to answer will be heard saying, Give an account of thy stewardship. Christ calls upon everyone to consider. Make an honest reckoning. Put into one scale Jesus which means eternal treasure, life, truth, heaven, and the joy of Christ in souls redeemed, put into the other every attraction the world can offer. Into one scale put the loss of your own soul and the souls of those whom you might have been instrumental in saving. Into the other, for yourself and for them, 
a life that measures with the life of God. Way for time and for eternity. While you are thus engaged, Christ speaks, What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Mark 8 verse 36. God desires us to choose the heavenly in place of the earthly. He opens before us the possibilities of a heavenly investment. He would give encouragement to our loftiest aims, security to our choicest treasure. He declares, I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man than the golden wedge of Ophir, Isaiah 13, verse 12. When the riches that moth devours and rust corrupts shall be swept away, Christ's followers can rejoice in their heavenly treasure, the riches that are imperishable. Better than all the friendships of the world is the friendship of Christ redeemed. Better than a title to the noblest palace on earth is a title to the mansions our Lord has gone to prepare. And better than all the words of earthly praise will be the Saviour's words to his faithful servants. Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Matthew 25, verse 34. To those who have squandered his goods, Christ still gives opportunity to secure lasting riches. He says, Give, and it shall be given unto you. Provide yourselves bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. Luke 6 verse 38 and chapter 12 verse 33. Charge them that are rich in this world that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 to 19. Then let your property go beforehand to heaven. Lay up your treasures beside the throne of God. Make sure your title to the unsearchable riches of Christ. Make to yourselves friends by means of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when it shall fail, they may receive you into the eternal tabernacles. Who is my neighbour? This chapter is based on Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Among the Jews, the question, Who is my neighbour? caused endless dispute. They had no doubt as to the heathen and the Samaritans. These were strangers and enemies. But where should the distinction be made among the people of their own nation and among the different classes of society? Whom should the priest the rabbi, the elder, regard as neighbor. They spent their lives in a round of ceremonies to make themselves pure. Contact with the ignorant and careless multitude they taught would cause defilement that would require wearisome effort to remove. Were they to regard the unclean as neighbors? This question Christ answered in the parable of the Good Samaritan. He showed that our neighbor does not mean merely one of the church or faith to which we belong. It has no reference to race, colour or class distinction. Our neighbour is every person who needs our help. Our neighbour is every soul who is wounded and bruised by the adversary. Our neighbour is everyone who is the property of God. The parable of the Good Samaritan was called forth by a question put to Christ by a doctor of the law. As the Saviour was teaching, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
The Pharisee had suggested this question to the lawyer in the hope that they might entrap Christ in his words, and they listened eagerly for his answer. But the Saviour entered into no controversy. He required the answer from the questioner himself. What is written in the law? he asked. How readest thou? The Jews still accused Jesus of lightly regarding the law given from Sinai, but he turned the question of salvation upon the keeping of God's commandments. The lawyer said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbour as thyself. Thou hast answered right, Christ said, This do, and thou shalt live. The lawyer was not satisfied with the position and works of the Pharisees. He had been studying the Scriptures with a desire to learn their real meaning. He had a vital interest in the matter, and he asked in sincerity, What shall I do? In his answer as to the requirements of the law, he passed by all the mass of ceremonial and ritualistic precepts. For these he claimed no value, but presented the two great principles on which hang all the law and the prophets. The Saviour's commendation of this answer placed him on vantage ground with the rabbis. They could not condemn him for sanctioning that which had been advanced by an expositor of the law. This do, and thou shalt live, Christ said. In his teaching, he ever presented the law as a divine unity, showing that it is impossible to keep one precept and break another, for the same principle runs through all. Man's destiny will be determined by his obedience to the whole law. Christ knew that no one could obey the law in his own strength. He desired to lead the lawyer to clearer and more critical research that he might find the truth. Only by accepting the virtue and grace of Christ can we keep the law. Belief in the propitiation for sin enables fallen man to love God with his whole heart and his neighbour as himself. The lawyer knew that he had kept neither the first four nor the last six commandments. He was convicted under Christ's searching words, but instead of confessing his sin, he tried to excuse it. Rather than acknowledge the truth, he endeavoured to show how difficult a fulfilment the commandment is. Thus he hoped both to parry conviction and to vindicate himself in the eyes of the people. The Saviour's words had shown that his question was needless, since he was able to answer it himself. Yet he put forth another question, saying, Who is my neighbour? Again Christ refused to be drawn into controversy. He answered the question by relating an incident, the memory of which was fresh in the minds of his hearers. A certain man, he said, went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. In journeying from Jerusalem to Jericho, the traveller had to pass through a portion of the wilderness of Judea. The road led down a wild, rocky ravine, which was infested with robbers and was often the scene of violence. It was here that the traveller was attacked, stripped of all that was valuable, and left half dead by the wayside. As he lay thus, a priest came that way. He saw the man lying wounded and bruised, weltering in his own blood, but he left him without rendering any assistance. He passed by on the other side. Then a Levite appeared. Curious to know what had happened, he stopped and looked at the sufferer. 
He was convicted of what he ought to do, but it was not an agreeable duty. He wished that he had not come that way, so that he would not have seen the wounded man. He persuaded himself that the case was no concern of his, and he too passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, travelling the same road, saw the sufferer, and he did the work that the others had refused to do. With gentleness and kindness he ministered to the wounded man. When he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. The priest and the Levite both professed piety, but the Samaritan showed that he was truly converted. It was no more agreeable for him to do the work than for the priest and the Levite, but in spirit and works he proved himself to be in harmony with God. In giving this lesson, Christ presented the principles of the law in a direct, forcible way, showing his hearers that they had neglected to carry out these principles. His words were so definite and pointed that the listeners could find no opportunity to cavil. The lawyer found in the lesson nothing that he could criticize. His prejudice in regard to Christ was removed, but he had not overcome his national dislike sufficiently to give credit to the Samaritan by name. When Christ asked, Which now of these three, thinkest thou, was neighbor unto himself that fell among the thieves? He answered, he that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. Show the same tender kindness to those in need. Thus you will give evidence that you keep the whole law. The great difference between the Jews and the Samaritans was a difference in religious belief, a question as to what constitutes true worship. The Pharisees would say nothing good of the Samaritans, but poured their bitterest curses upon them. So strong was the antipathy between the Jews and the Samaritans that to the Samaritan woman it seemed a strange thing for Christ to ask her for a drink. How is it, she said, that thou being a Jew askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For adds the evangelist, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. John 4 verse 9. Join us again next time as Clive Nash continues to read from the book Christ's Object Lessons, written by Ellen G. White. short presentation on the history of the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. John Wesley was born in 1703, just before the Industrial Revolution took place, 
during a time when England was a firmly Anglican country. He was born in the small village of Epworth in the north of England, where his father served as the rector. This here is the family home where he would have grown up and spent his childhood. His mother bore 19 children in total, and the most famous of the others was Charles Wesley. Both of the parents were spiritual people and ran the home according to strict rules. No eating in between meals, and once a week, they had an interview with their mother for the purpose of spiritual instruction. John and his brother Charles came here to study at Oxford University, where they enrolled at Christ College. Many of the great movements of this world have been born at universities, and although he did not know it at the time, John Wesley was about to be part of this phenomenon. He graduated from Christ College with a bachelor's and then with a master's, before he was elected a fellow at Lincoln College, where he was given his own room and a salary. His room can still be seen today, preserved as he left it. He left for about a year or so to go back to Epworth at the request of his father before returning back here to university. It was on his return that he found his brother Charles had started a small club for the purpose of Bible study and in pursuit of Christian life. Each member took vows to lead holy lives, pray daily, take communion weekly, and visit prisons regularly. The group was incredibly practical, preaching, educating, relieving jail debtors where possible, and caring for the sick. They would fast every Wednesday, and on each day they would meet from 6 to 9 p.m., and the name that they were called was the Holy Club. However, this is not what they became known by. In 1733, an unknown author wrote in a pamphlet and described them as the Oxford Methodist, and slowly this name began to stick. It was also here that John Wesley's paths would cross with another man who would go on to have a huge impact, George Whitfield. George Whitfield graduated from Pembroke College, and when he finished university, rather than settle in a parish, he immediately began preaching, becoming an itinerant preacher and evangelist. He traveled all over England, in particular in Bristol, where he spent some time with John Wesley, and they both did open-air preaching. Both the Wesleys and Whitfield would spend time in America, but with differing results in their ministries. John Wesley went to Georgia, but it did not go very well, and he returned home to England. George Whitfield traveled to America on seven different occasions, had much success, and was well-liked. He was involved in the Great Awakening that took place in the 1700s, a great religious revival, and is also remembered as one of the first that preached to those enslaved. The roots of this far-reaching movement of Methodism go back to a small group Bible study with a handful of students on a university campus. Zechariah chapter 4 verse 10 says, Do not despise the day of small things. Never underestimate the impact of a small movement with humble beginnings. The Wesleys and Whitfield did not start the Holy Club because they wanted to found a church or travel the world, but because they wanted to change their life and the lives of those around them. 
I pray that you may seek to make a difference wherever you are, be it at home, work, or school. Do not despise the day of small things. To view more episodes in this series on the Reformation, go to lineagejourney.com.